You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. The Barry Boys episode 327. At home in New York with the Settlers. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And welcome to the second part of our At Home in New York Listeners Challenge. Now, last month, we asked you our listeners, to tell us about how you feel at home in New York City and when you first felt that. Yeah, and that's because we have all been spending a lot of time in our homes during these past few months. We've received dozens of voicemails and emails from people with all kinds of answers to the question. Home in New York, it turns out, means different things to different people. Yeah, Now, we started last week by reading an excerpt from the 1948 essay by E.B. White, Mm -hmm. Here is New York. I have my copy still sitting by the computer here, Tom, just for this occasion. (laughs) By the way, your first edition copy. Don't overlook that. Oh, yeah. I got it in a used bookstore. And then this week found out it was the first edition. That's amazing. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not going to store it under the bed anymore. (laughs) I think I'm going to put it on a shelf. Anyway, in this marvelous essay, he divides the city into several camps. uh, The natives, the commuters, and the settlers. Now, last week, we heard from two of these categories, the natives and the commuters. And, of course, we also heard from the visitors, Mm -hmm. those who have never lived in New York. Right. But this week... We are turning to the settlers, those people who have made the big plunge at some point during their lives and made the move to New York City. So in essence, I guess we're asking, as a transplant to New York, when did you become a New Yorker? When did this place become your home? Now, E.B.Y., I would say respects this group the most. He has a lot of respect for this group. To uh, reiterate, he said, quote, third There is the New York of the person who was born somewhere else and came to New York in quest of something. For these, this is the city of final destination, the city that is a goal. It is this third city that accounts for New York's high-strung disposition, its poetical deportment, its dedication to the arts, and its incomparable achievements. Commuters give the city its title restlessness, natives give it solidity and continuity, but the settlers give it passion. So today's show is all about passion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some moved to New York, of course, and stayed, while others moved away, uh, but held on to it in some way. Sometimes held on to it very literally, like Jimmy from Tampa, Florida, who wrote to us, 
Hi guys, I'm writing to tell you my story of how I still feel connected to the city that was my home for 44 years. During my time working in New York, I worked as a laborer for a construction company. The job site was Carnegie Hall, and they were renovating it to build Zenkel Hall, a 600-seat auditorium. There were numerous containers full of bedrock, Manhattan schist, that was removed in order to build the hall. And in the process, I kept about 70 pounds of it for myself as a way of truly owning a piece of Manhattan. To this day, I wear a necklace that has a capsule with bedrock in it at all times so that I feel like I never really left home, as now I've been living in Tampa, Florida for the past five years. Wow, that's so interesting. And actually, I would love to know what you do with the rest of the 70 pounds of rock, Jimmy. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot you can do with that. So, you know, er everyone has a different story here, a different reason for moving here, and a different trajectory for calling New York home. Often that homey feeling takes a while to arrive. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then let me ask you, Greg, mm-hmm. you mentioned in the last show, um, you, you mentioned that we both formally moved to New York in 1993. You had been here for an internship before that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but did you feel right at home when you moved here in 93 or did it take a while to sort of make you feel at ease? It took a while for me. I mean, my story is is pretty unique. I must say, I think everyone's stories are unique. But as I said in the last show, I did have an internship in in New York in 1992. Then I went back to Missouri. Then, long story short, after graduation, I'm kind of hanging out in Missouri, waiting to come back to New York. I know I want to come to New York. I, I have a job as a late night grocery clerk making money, like saving all my money, eating macaroni and cheese, like saving all my money because I want to move back to New York. But I'm like, I was planning on doing it, right? All of a sudden, I get a phone call late one night, and it was a friend of mine who lived in New York. I had a couple friends that lived here, and they were really helping me out with advice and everything. Well, one day, this friend called and said, my roommate, your friend, Uh, just died last night. And so I'm wondering if you could come to New York right now. And so, you know, that was really intense. And so within a week, I I picked up, well, maybe two weeks. I can't remember what I told them at the grocery store. But I essentially got into a U-Haul and came to New York right at that very moment. And I moved into a room of someone whose stuff was still there. In fact, I had his stuff in the closet because he had really nice taste in clothes. So I kept them all there in the closet. And so then that first few months, not only did I not really feel at home, but I felt like I was actually imposing. And so then for the next few years, that apartment, which, Tom, you know very well, mm-hmm. uh, that was the apartment on 23rd Street, that apartment really became a way station for lots of people who were coming to New York. People slept on the couch. That place never felt like home to me. It felt like a place where these wayward souls from the Midwest were gathering and hanging out, and this was going to launch us into New York. And In a way, that's what it did for me. But during the 1990s, although I very much wanted to be in New York, I did not quite, as of yet, feel at home there. Interesting. And then what about you? But were you even thinking this, like when you were a freshman in college up at Columbia University? Were you were you thinking about like your connectivity with New York? Well, 
I mean, I was all of a sudden thrown together with like 800 other kids in my class, you know, from all over the country. So there was a there was really like a hot mess of emotions and insecurities going on. So I don't really know how I was thinking about the city necessarily. But one thing that I did try right away was to establish a routine um, that that seemed to me at the time to be very New York. You know, I I decided that I would go every morning for breakfast, not to the cafeteria, but to Tom's Diner, um, <laughs> which was literally on my block. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was just at the other side of the block. And now in 1993, go back to that Suzanne Vega's song, you know, had just come out three years before in 1990. And Seinfeld, by this point, was in its fifth season. And, of course, they set, you know, Tom's Diner was the setting for, like, their, it was their go-to diner on the show. Yeah. And Tom's Diner, like, makes delicious pancakes. So I thought that I would become a morning regular there at Tom's Diner and that that might somehow kind of, like, you know, make me a New Yorker. At the very least, like, <laughs> that's what you did in New York. You went to the same diner and sat in the same booth, and they knew you. They gave you the little nod at the door, and you took your normal seat. And you went there by yourself every day? Almost every day for months <laughs> by my well by myself with a copy of the Daily News. And w- like, was there a reason specifically for the Daily News as as opposed to another newspaper? I I thought that the big old gray lady was actually kind of pretentious, you know, because I was a freshman <laughs> at the time. So mm-hmm. don't yeah, we won't sure, talk about that. But also, I think I chose the Daily News because they sing about it in the opening number of Guys and Dolls. You know, what's in the da- Daily News? I'll tell you what's in the Daily News. What's in the Daily News? I'll tell you what's in the Daily News. Story about a guy who bought his wife a small ruby with what otherwise would have been his union dues. That's what's in the Daily News. But what? so did this Did this work? Did this like, so you're like forcing yourself into a kind of procedure. Um, but did you, did you magically become a New Yorker? No, I magically became 15 pounds heavier um, from... <laughs> pancakes it was all pancakes and bacon all of it and i spent the next year until probably the next summer rollerblading off all of those pancakes and bacon oh my god rollerblading that's like the most 90s thing you have said ever well, so what? Well, the point is yeah what's the point here feeling at home in this crazy city takes time mm-hmm. and it requires dealing with that nagging feeling that you know perhaps you've made a really big mistake should you just move back home i mean if that's something you think about when you actually have another place you could go right mm-hmm. and then in fact was the case with a fellow uh, who calls himself jersey city who when he moved to new york found that life could be really tough hi this is jersey city I first moved to New York City in June of 2007. I grew up on Long Island, but I never considered myself a New Yorker in in the truest sense of the word. And I really expected my first couple weeks in the city to be full of fun and excitement and everything else, but it was was a bit of a grind. It's It's a hard adjustment. And I always remember going out to my hometown on Long Island and seeing some friends and thinking, maybe I've made a terrible mistake uh, by moving here and moving away from all these people. But on the drive back, uh, we rounded the corner in Grand Central Parkway by LaGuardia, and just seeing that skyline pop up through the clouds, through the mist, just reminded me that this is where I belonged and where I always would. 
I miss it terribly. Yeah, so for, for him, it just took a, a view of the skyline to remind him that this is where he belonged. And by the way, that kind of self-doubt goes both ways. Even people who don't end up moving here can feel it. We got an email from Jay from Springfield, Missouri. Wait, and- get out of here. Springfield, Missouri. My, that's where I was born. Hey, Jay. Well, he grew up in Missouri, and he was obsessed with New York history. And he writes, quote, At the end of my junior year in high school, I applied to two schools, the University of Missouri and NYU, despite having never set foot in the city of my dreams. I was accepted to both, but I made the safe choice of choosing Mizzou along with many of my friends. To this day, I still ask myself, what if? But fortunately, Jay still visits often and does feel very home in New York. And he even takes bits of New York back to Missouri. In fact, every morning he writes that he listens to WNYC while clicking through the Daily News and the New York Post. Oh, there's the Daily News. Well, as long as he's not eating a bunch of pancakes. Or listening to Suzanne Vega. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, some people do take parts of New York with them back to their hometowns. But sometimes it's not a thing they take, but it can be like a custom or even a very like New York-y habit. Yeah, such is the case with Wendy D, who lives in Atlanta. Now, both of her parents grew up in the city and then moved away to Massachusetts, where she was raised. But they still acted like they lived in the Bronx. Hi, Bowery Royce. My name is Wendy D, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. For me, New York City is actually an ancestral home Both my parents grew up in the Bronx in the 30s, and even though they moved out of the city proper in the 60s and eventually moved to Massachusetts, where I was born, they always took New York with them. My mother, whose father was an apartment super, always had me sweep up the curb on our suburban street because that's what you do in the city. My father would only have Manhattan clam chowder, forget New England. Now in her 80s, my mom packs deli-style sandwiches on rye when she's traveling. Multiple times as a kid, I was driven four hours to the Bronx Zoo and the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade so that my childhood would be complete. We also would visit Rockefeller Center, Central Park, and City Island, where my father's family goes back to colonial times. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to spend the summer in New York during an internship. I arrived and immediately felt like it was my home sweeping up to the curb in the suburbs, eh? <laughs> so she was a child of New Yorkers. Yes, I apparently. bet that was one very clean cul-de-sac. <laughs> well, we also heard from parents who moved to New York following their children. This was the case for Diane, who moved to New York following her daughter, who was a dancer here in New York. And let's just say she found people to be friendly. Some of them, in fact, were really friendly. Hi, my name is Diane, and this is how I became a New Yorker. I used to come here to visit my daughter, who was a dancer here. And I found out that New York City has the nicest people everywhere. This is what happened. It was raining one day, and I was crossing the street, and I stepped on a manhole cover, and I fell down. And all of a sudden, these guys rushed out of two or three different buildings, and they they picked me up so fast I thought I bounced instead of fell. 
that was instant number one that was really nice. And number two happened when I came out of a bodega and this guy was petting my dog, this young man, and he was being so kind and gentle with the dog. And then we got to talking, and he was so nice. And then uh, he he had walked away, and I said, uh, regarding what we had been talking about, I said, yeah, because nobody cares. And he came back. He was halfway across the street. He came back, and he hugged me, a gentle, kind hug. And he said, don't say that. And I said right then, I said, I'm moving here. They got the nicest people on earth. Well, later on, I realized he was probably high on X, you know. But then I moved here anyway, and that was five years ago. And I tell you, I won't live in a city where I can't strike up a conversation with somebody next to me. I love it here. I'm a New Yorker for life. Uh, we did get a lot of stories from parents, actually. Mm-hmm. Evie from Seattle wrote to us about exploring the city's parks virtually with her daughter, who was studying at NYU. Virtually? Were they were they Zooming? No, her, her daughter needed to visit all of these open spaces and parks for her studies, and so she'd call her mom in Seattle, you know, with a phone, Oh, Tom? right, just a phone call, yeah. <laughs> so we're just on the phone, and they'd chat for hours while she walked the parks. This is really beautiful. She wrote, quote, When I visit, we often plan an actual trip to one of the parks I visited virtually. My most recent trip before the virus hit took us to Socrates Sculpture Park and the Noguchi Museum. I've walked the circumference of Manhattan, joining the Shorewalkers' great saunter. I've walked from the the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens back to my hotel in Greenwich Village. I've tried to find all the trails in the bramble of Central Park. New York feels like home when I sit on a bench in Washington Square Park, eating my dosa and watching kids play soccer in the fountain. I can't wait for my next chance to walk in the city that feels like home. I hear you, Evie, and I can't wait to join you in Washington Square Park. I'll buy a round of doses. But also, you know, it's interesting how she mentions that walking in the city has made her feel so much closer to it. It is true. Walking is such a key part to feeling close to the city. Well, I actually think that that is why I feel at home in New York. So, like, throughout the 90s, like, I never took the subway, which was weird. I mean, I did, obviously, if it was in other boroughs. But, like, for the most part, I just walked all the time. And just, you know, imprinting all those streets upon your memory to the point that you could, like, you know, recount them when you get back home and you can even dream about them. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when we were both on the Lower East Side and you were working on 57th Street, you walked that. Didn't you walk home at night? I walked home all the time uh, along the East River waterfront. And uh, yeah, I mean, it gives you a lot of time to process the city. You're literally staring and finding something new every time you walk. I mean, to me, that is one of the key factors to me, not only like feeling at home here, but becoming a New Yorker. Yeah. And turning back to these multi-generational stories, because we got many of them, um, another story came from Stephanie from the Bronx. She's a native of the Bronx, but her story came in a little bit too late for our last show. So it kind of fits in well here. Mm -hmm. So Stephanie was born in the Bronx, but she moved to Illinois. She lived in 
Tokyo, the Philippines, but she's now back in the city. And she wrote to us about learning about New York, not from walking it, but from the backseat of her father's taxi cab. However, my greatest love for the city has always been seen through the window of a car as it zooms down back streets, making the twists and turns to avoid as many traffic lights as possible. You see, my father, born in Alabama but moved to New York City in his teens, was a quintessential New York City cab driver and then personal black car driver throughout my life until his passing back in 2010. He always showed me those little nooks and crannies of the city that it felt like only he knew of and he wanted to shine a light on. Whether it was on the West Side Highway or on the top of a building, I always found myself looking at the little known through the tales of my father as we drove to our destination. What a cool education in the back of your father's taxi cab. And then for some, it skipped a generation. Uh, Jill from Brightwaters, New York, wrote about her experience spending extended time with her grandmother, who lived in the Yorkville neighborhood of the Upper East Side. She wrote, I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island, a child of two native New Yorkers who grew up in Yorkville. Although I never lived in the city, I always felt it was my second home. As a child, we visited my grandmother, still living in Yorkville at the time, every Sunday. My sister and I, as young as four and six, were allowed to get the evening paper by ourselves down on the avenue. Leaning out the fourth floor apartment, window people watching and falling asleep to the sirens and sounds of New York was just heaven for us. My Oma worked in a thrift shop on East 28th Street, and my sister and I spent many weekends there with her. That was long before thrift shops were trendy, and as very young girls, we met all sorts of characters. Picture New York City in the early 70s. When asked where I'm from, I always say New York, as that for me sums up my life, connected to both the city and Long Island. Tom, our next story, we're about to head to the Hotel Chelsea. So we'll get to that and many more stories after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. 
But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Now, some listeners shared what I would say are downright star-studded stories of moving to New York. Shared those stories with us. I mean, it's hard to get more fabulous and filled with bold-faced names than the story sent to us from Blair. Blair, who lived in the Hotel Chelsea. Hi, my name is Blair. I call New York City home. Although I'm a native Floridian, I did the reverse and moved up there later in life. I moved to the Chelsea Hotel in a very strange time, pre-9-11, uh, in Edie Sedgwick's old apartment that was constantly being burned by her. Uh, great memories of going downstairs to the El Quixote restaurant or the YMCA across the street. My neighbors were the Ramones and Susan Barsh with her small child at the time. And just knowing Chelsea before the commercialization of it, some great memories and some great times and uh, stories at the Chelsea Hotel. Again, my name is Blair, and I call New York City home now. I mean, could you imagine if your home was Edie Sedgwick's old apartment? I mean, it is true that someone today lives in, like, Andy Warhol's old apartment. I mean, that's just, like, like that's a true statement. So, well, anyway, yeah. but uh, Blair also mentions El Quixote, which, which is was a classic New York restaurant that is unfortunately closed for good. But it makes me think of an email we received from Ron in New York, who was speculating about why New Yorkers share so much personal information so loudly in restaurants and public spaces. 
You know, sharing information loudly in restaurants just sounds so appealing to me right now, I have to say. (laughs) Over sharing, over appetizers and daiquiris, talking way too loud, sharing a little bit too much personal information. Yes. It shall come back. (laughs) Well, Ron and his wife, who'd lived in many other major cities, were shocked by how loudly people shared their most intimate conversations in such close proximity to complete strangers. And he wrote, not long afterwards, we postulated that small apartments made the New York City definition of home different than in other places I'd lived. Public spaces in New York are an extension of your home. Shared spaces can be private ones. Central Park was our backyard. The subway was our car. Restaurants were our dining room. And he continues, And that's what makes the current situation so strange. People are spending more elapsed day and evening times in small apartments over the past five weeks than they probably have in the past year or two combined. And those other parts of home, particularly restaurants, have been taken away for the time being. I feel that that's a very good insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, in my own life, uh, those parts of our home have been taken away from us at this moment, which brings us to feeling at home in New York while living through challenging times. We've seen many different kinds of challenges here in the city, including mm-hmm. Hurricane Sandy. Oh, yes. Um, during Sandy, my sense of home on the Lower East Side without power that week certainly shifted. (laughs) Yes. But even blizzards and snowstorms are challenges that are experienced collectively here in New York. Jay, uh, a native New Yorker, called in with a story about finding his way home during the polar vortex of 2014. Remember that? I haven't heard the words polar vortex in a while. Uh, (laughs) So here's his story. Hi, uh, my name is Jay, and I live in Los Angeles, but I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I grew up on the west side near Hell's Kitchen and Columbus Circle. Um, And even though I live in L.A., I'll always be a New Yorker. And what I love about New York and why New York will always feel like home is that it automatically gives you the ability to problem solve and figure it out no matter what situation you're in, because the city will always throw new problems at you. And one example for me was during the polar vortex of 2014, I had a gig in Williamsburg that ended fairly late and it was freezing outside and the L train wasn't running, of course. Um, and there were these buses lined up, but they were all empty. So no one knew how to get across the bridge. Um, so against every fiber of my being, I got into a cab because, because of construction on the bridge, uh, the cab went four blocks in 25 minutes. So I noticed that there was a city bike station. So I got out of the cab, put my trumpet on the city bike. Uh, and then biked across the Williamsburg Bridge in these sub-zero temperatures with a wind chill in my face to the first subway station that I saw once I got back to Manhattan. It was an awful night, everything going wrong, and after hours of traveling through the polar vortex, it was just one of those moments where, you know, the city will always provide a way home, and kind of, you're always going to have to figure it out, and that's what I what I, what I love most about New York. Ugh, you know that feeling, Greg. Mm-hmm. The the You know the feeling of the endless trip home, that you simply have to figure out. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a blizzard. Sometimes it's at 2.30 in the morning (laughs) trying to get home from another borough, for instance. On the F train. Yeah. But if we're talking about challenging times, though, of course this leads us to September 11th. And several people wrote to us about how 9-11 changed their relationship to the city. 
And I think that that is something that we can both, you know, that you and I can both identify with as well. Yeah. I mean, I was in the Lower East Side on September 11th. And the the interesting thing is that I, by that point, I'd been in New York for several years. So I actually felt at home in New York. This is a, a, an unusual distinction. It's hard to put into words. But like I felt at home in New York, but I didn't quite feel like a New Yorker. And what going through that experience underscored for me was that part of that meant I feel like I needed to know New Yorkers better. That I was living in this neighborhood of Orthodox Jewish people. You know, there were Muslim people that I talked to every day at the corner deli that I didn't know their stories. There were all the different people in my neighborhood that I was living with, that we were getting through this together. But like, what did I know about them? Mm -hmm. Being a New Yorker is not just, oh, I know all of the streets, but also a kind of understanding or an awareness of those people around you, a certain bond that you all have, that you all might like get up in each other's face or something, you know, like honking your horn or whatever, but that there's a certain connectivity that I think that a city like this fosters. And so, you know, it was because of that particular moment that, you know, started me on my journey about wanting to learn more about New York and the people who lived here in New York. For me, I was living that year in 2001 in Berlin, Germany. Um, and I had originally planned to stay longer. Um, and on 9-11, I finally was able to call back to New mm -hmm. York and talk to you. Yeah, uh, And you yeah. were over at my apartment where my sister was living. I'll, I'll never forget that. But once that happened, I realized over the course of a couple of weeks that I actually couldn't, I didn't want to stay outside the country any longer. I actually wanted to get back to New York because I, I had the sense that I needed to get home. And I think that that was the first time that I really, really thought of the city as my home because it was somehow, it had somehow been clarified because of that crisis. And judging from the responses that we got for this show, for the At Home in New York show, you're not alone in that sentiment. Hannah N. wrote to us that she'd, she'd moved to the city prior to 2001 and had a hard time getting established here, you know, like getting a job and an apartment and even, you know, even getting friends. But she wrote, quote, New York really became home to me post 9-11 and years later. For me, it began what I noticed post 9-11 that it collectively softened us as New Yorkers. Yes, we're still in a hurry all the time, but at least now I feel like people will give me directions with a curt smirk and people aren't as curmudgeonly from the jump. That didn't feel as common when I arrived five years prior. I really appreciate that collective shift and that it hasn't left us. Heather, who lives in Sleepy Hollow, lived for 25 years in New York, including in 2001. Hi, my name is Heather and I live in Sleepy Hollow, New York. But before that, I lived in New York City for 25 years. And when I first moved to the city, I was young and I was very homesick for a while. And when the Twin Towers were struck, I worked at the Little Red Schoolhouse in the village and it was obviously very traumatic. 
some of my students had parents that had worked at the World Trade Center, and that day was so terrifying for all of the students and teachers. And the first time I returned to my hometown of Cleveland after 9-11, someone there asked me if I had been in New York City when the Twin Towers fell, and I said yes, and the woman reached out and poked me on the arm and said, now I can tell people that I touched someone who was there. I instantly felt out of place. And a couple of days later, on my way back to New York, the airplane flew right over the city and seeing the skyline and all the buildings, I was flooded with a feeling of comfort. And I knew I was going back to a place where everyone had that one event in common. And that was the first time I felt like New York City was home. I think that sentiment, everyone having that one event in common is Obviously something that we can relate to today mm-hmm. as we navigate another moment of crisis. Yes, and that can give us a sense of home as well, uh, which is a fitting ending to our story today and one that we will wrap up with an email from Ashley H., who is originally from Maine. She sums up so much of what we've been discussing. She writes that, quote, I was born in Las Vegas and spent most of my life in Maine. But even as a toddler, I was fascinated by anything my grandfather was watching that was set in New York City. I wore out a VHS of a chorus line and forced my granddad to watch Annie with me at least once a week. When people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I thought, I just want to be there. Now I live here. I'm married to a native Staten Islander and live in Five Points. It's interesting to hear how many people would leave during all this chaos, when all I can think is, I wouldn't rather be anywhere but here. It's home. It's always felt like home to me. And now I feel like I'll be part of its culture in a way that you only are after living in the city while it's in crisis. Whatever is going on in this world, nothing beats the comfort of walking through Chinatown, looking up Mulberry Street, and seeing the Chrysler building watching over me. A really huge thank you to all the listeners who called in or emailed us their stories. Yes, we're only saddened that we weren't able to include all of them. A big shout out to some of the stories we couldn't fit in including those from Mary Frances of Macon, Georgia, who who found home at St. Mary's Residence for Women on the Upper East Side, uh, where she moved rather reluctantly, but was so sad to leave five years later. And also thank you to Donald from Glasgow, who Mm -hmm. marvels at the serendipitous experiences he's had all over town and what he calls the greatest city in the world. Please visit our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, for more stories about New York City history. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, of course, a huge thank you to those who have joined us on Patreon.com. Yes, Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. It is because of your support, especially during this rather tricky time, uh, that Greg and I are able to dedicate all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys podcast. We... We would not have this show without your generous support. So thank you. And for those who join us on Patreon, of course, you'll have special access to patron-only shows, including the Barry Boys Movie Club and The Takeout, the show that goes behind the scenes here at the Barry Boys. 
Also, we wanted to give a special shout out to our tour guides who we've been working with over at Bowery Boys Walks. We know that nobody is really out in the street right now taking walking tours, but we are offering them online, virtual, amazing virtual live experiences are taking place with these wonderful tour guides. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com and sign up to take a virtual tour of Broadway theater history, of Ladies Mile, of the World's Fair, and of the Elevated Railroads. So much is going on, and you don't even have to leave home. <laughs> and, and finally, Tom is going to go back into parenthood here for a couple weeks. <laughs> so uh, the next show this Friday will just be a solo show. And we're going to go to a weekly schedule for the next few weeks here as we adjust to all of our new realities. But I'm very excited about that, that solo show, Tom, because it's all about food. I can't wait to devour it. And thank you so much for helping out while I'm, you know, busy burping babies over here. <laughs> at home. Very much at home. Very yes. much at home. Well, thank you for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.